Podcastle, episode 238, for December 11th, 2012, Sleep and Wake, by Holly Mincer. Rated R for some slight adult language, but I don't know, it's really a pretty sweet little tale. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. Everybody knows the story of Sleeping Beauty, right? The princess cursed to prick her finger on a spindle and die on her 16th birthday, the fairy who changes that to sleep, the kiss from the handsome prince that awakens her. You're probably remembering either the Disney version or the one the Brothers Grimm published. The Grimm's got it from Charles Perrault, and they almost didn't include it in their collection on the grounds that it wasn't really German. There are no other Germanic versions of Sleeping Beauty. They included it, though, figuring that the motif did occur in Germanic literature in the form of Brunhilde sleeping in her circle of fire. It was the Grimm's who added the Wall of Deadly Thorns. In Perrault, it was just an obscuring screen of trees and brush. And the Grimm's also added that very famous kiss. In Perrault's version, there was no kiss at all. The princess wakes up because the spell is expired. Perrault, as it happens, had the story from the Italian writer Giambattista Basile. And it turns out, Perrault cleaned it up quite a bit. In Basile's version, there's no curse, it's just fate. It's not the spindle itself that does her in, it's a splinter of flax that gets under her fingernail. And she's not asleep, she's dead. Like Snow White, she'll be not dead when the fatal object is removed, but dead she is. And when a king out hunting finds her, he doesn't kiss her, he rapes her and leaves. The dead princess ends up giving birth to twins, one of whom sucks the flax out of her finger, and she comes back to life. Yeah, you can see why Disney didn't go with that one. Incidentally, there's a maybe older, maybe not version of the princess undone by flax under her fingernail that appears in some versions of The Thousand One Nights. It's called The Ninth Captain's Tale, but rather like Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, it's a late edition and can only be traced back to an Egyptian story collected in the early 1800s. It's really interesting, though, for just how active the princess is. Despite her flax-induced hibernation, she actually drives much of the story by her own actions. Also, incidentally... I'd bet when you think pricked her finger on a spindle, you're thinking of a spinning wheel with something inexplicably sharp on it. But actually, all these versions refer not to spinning wheels, but to drop spindles, which are basically just weighted sticks. They're not actually the sort of thing you could easily stab yourself with. A number of analyses of the story talk about the spindle's phallic shape, but it's maybe worth considering that for centuries in Europe, spinning was ubiquitous as women's work. If you were an adult woman and you had a few moments with your hands free, you used those spinning. Walking to the market, you stuck your distaff in your belt, that was a stick that held your unspun fiber, and walked along spinning with your drop spindle. It was so ubiquitous that to this day we talk about the distaff side of your family, that being your mother's side. And though for fairly obvious social reasons it's falling out of use, we still sometimes call unmarried adult women spinsters. This association of spinning with the routine tasks of adult women with womanhood itself, might be just as important for thinking about Sleeping Beauty, more important maybe, than all the Freudian theories about puberty and menarche and discovering sex. Today's story is Sleep and Wake by Holly Mincer. She lives in College Park, Maryland and owns a small business selling vintage clothes in Tacoma Park. She tweets about genre fiction and vintage clothing at Holly Michelle. Sleep and Wake first ran in the View From Here literary magazine in May of 2011. Ms. Mincer says, Some time ago, I read that the most common recurring dream among New Yorkers is one in which they find extra space in their apartments. 
It got tangled up with a modern take on Sleeping Beauty, and this story was the result. Sleep and Wake is read by Brian Rollins. Brian writes reviews for the sci-fi blog Bureau42.com and voiced a variety of characters for the MMORPG Alterverse. You can find out more about him on his website, thevoicesinmyhead.com. Sleep and Wake by Holly Mincer At the top of the Greenbrier Building in Brooklyn, a girl has been sleeping for a hundred years. In fact, she may have been sleeping longer, but the Greenbrier was built a hundred years ago, and the room in which she sleeps was walled off and hidden, and ivy tangled its way up the sides of the building until even the window was lost. She would likely sleep there still, except that Rick wanted to know why his apartment was 150 square feet too small. It was a nice apartment. It had a breakfast nook, a washer-dryer combo, and floor-to-ceiling built-in shelves in the living room and at the end of the hall. Rick liked it a lot. The building had never been renovated, not really, except to split the apartments into smaller studios and one-bedrooms and to replace the stove and fridge. There were weird pokey corners and weathered wooden floors and ornate brass fittings everywhere. Rick's bathroom contained a massive clawfoot tub that, when she saw it, made Angela say, Oh my God, no fair. Angela was a friend of Rick's who lived in the building already. She was the one who had gotten him the apartment. She had been living in the Greenbrier for six months when she found out the previous tenant was leaving Rick's apartment, and she called him more or less instantaneously with the news. He probably wouldn't have gotten it otherwise. It was the least expensive apartment in the building. This was, apparently, because it was slightly smaller than the other apartments on the top floor, and because the elevator only went as far as the floor below, for reasons no one could quite explain. The Greenbrier was twelve stories tall, with a lot of complicated ironwork on the doors and the fire escapes, and it had a shabby, half-hearted Art Nouveau lobby. The elevator shaft was set right into the crook of the building's L-shape, with Rick's apartment just above it. Rick moved in on a gray, damp, late winter day, filling a U-Haul with his disassembled furniture, his boxes of books and dishes. Angela's boyfriend drove the truck. Rick had grown up in New York, and never needed a license except when he moved, so he sat in the passenger seat with a grocery bag full of beer balanced on his knees. He distributed the beer to Angela and her boyfriend and the other friends he'd wheedled into helping him move, and they set up his stereo on bare floorboards, sitting cross-legged on blankets and sofa cushions while his buddy Paul tried to make the TV talk to the cable box. His first night in his apartment in the Greenbrier, Rick slept with his mattress on the bedroom floor, the pieces of his bed frame still in a pile in the breakfast nook. He dreamed about walking in the rain, carrying a clinking plastic bag of glass bottles, the handles pinching into his fingers. In the dream, he passed a bus shelter and saw, through the glass, a girl sitting on a bench. Oh, you knew, she said, and suddenly he was sitting next to her, the way you do in dreams. She had a lot of curly dark hair and gray eyes, eyebrows a little too heavy for her face, and a red mouth that turned down at the corners. Rick offered her a beer from the bag. Thank you, she said solemnly, and they clinked bottles. It makes a nice housewarming present, she said. Very thoughtful. Aren't you supposed to give me the housewarming present, Rick asked? I mean, I'm the one that just moved in. True, she said, but I was here first. Rick didn't remember the dream in the morning, 
He had taken a Friday off of work to move, so he had the weekend to paint and hang pictures and screw legs into chairs. Rick worked in an office, in a job so boring he refused to devote any mental energy to it when he wasn't actually there. He unpacked his books and decided this time he'd organize them. He made a good start before he gave up and crammed all the odd-sized ones onto a shelf together, and all the paperbacks on the narrower shelves in the hall. When he went through the kitchen things, he found a whole box of stuff he'd written off as lost in the last move. A bunch of dishes and his smallest cast-iron pan and his old measuring cups. He'd bought new ones since then, and a scattering of coffee mugs. Angela and her boyfriend came up at dinner time with boxes of takeout to christen the kitchen, Angela said. Don't I have to cook to do that? Rick asked. That's crazy talk. Eat your egg roll, Angela said, shaking her head at him. That night, Rick dreamed about the apartment he'd lived in two moves before the Greenbrier, when he'd lived with Sophie. Except the apartment was bigger than it should have been. He went through door after door, rooms the place never held, around corners and down hallways. Sophie, always a voice on the other side of the wall, too low to make out. At one point, he paused in a tiny, low-ceiling bedroom crammed with dusty stuff his dreaming brain didn't supply enough detail to. There was a dark-haired girl sitting cross-legged on the bed. Take a break, she said. You're not going to find her anyway. Tell me about yourself. She offered him a tiny smile, the corners of her mouth turning up for an instant. Rick hesitated and finally sat on the cobweb-draped chair. Um, okay he said, and they talked until Rick's alarm snapped him awake. The dream hung suspended in his head for a few moments, but it was gone by the time he levered himself out of bed. The next few months went like that. Rick went to work and came home and dreamed, spent weekends doing minor home improvement projects, and went to bed and dreamed. Started a home-cooked meal rota with Angela and the two sisters who lived on the fourth floor, stayed in their apartment drinking hard cider and watching movies until one, and staggered up to his own apartment and dreamed. He never remembered, when he woke up, the dark-haired girl who interrupted his subconscious normal wanderings to ask him about his day, or to have long conversations about TV shows he was watching. Once, he dreamed of walking on a beach, bemused at the old-fashioned clothes on the swimmers, and passed the girl lying full length on a towel, on her stomach, a stack of paper books at her elbow. Don't mind me, she said. I borrowed this one from a previous tenant. The books are yours, though. So he picked up a battered paperback, which he recognized as the To Kill a Mockingbird he'd had since ninth grade, and sat down on the sand beside her to read. At work the next day, bits of the book kept running through his brain unprompted, but he still didn't remember the dream. Rick's sister got married in April, and he went home for a long weekend to see his parents and stand with the other groomsmen, Denise's fiancé beaming as she walked toward them down the aisle. At the reception, a steady stream of Denise's work friends stopped by his table to introduce themselves, and it wasn't until afterward that he realized that they had, in fact, been Denise's unmarried female work friends. He felt dumb about it, and she teased him for it at breakfast the next morning, her oblivious big brother still. Rick didn't notice that, while he was under his parents' roof, he didn't dream about the dark-haired girl. Instead, he dreamed about sitting in a college lecture hall with Denise and her husband and half of the wedding party mixed in with real students, all of them taking notes intently. 
When he tried to point out that they weren't enrolled in this class and hadn't, in fact, even attended this college, Denise shushed him. Pay attention, she told him sternly. This is the last review before the exam, you know. In the morning, Rick took a moment to reflect that even being years out of school didn't keep you from having academic anxiety dreams. Anyhow, that was really unfair. When he got back to New York, he stopped remembering his dreams, but it didn't really bother him. He was busy, with work, with learning to make good short ribs, with a girl he met at a party on the fourth floor, who he went with on six dates, and slept with, and then had trouble staying really interested in until she told him she was getting back together with her ex, which solved that problem. Rick worried a little that it hadn't bothered him more, but Angela said it was probably just that he still wasn't really over Sophie. In his dreams, the dark-haired girl shook her head and said, God, no, that's not it. You're cute, you know, but you're kind of dense. In the dream, he found her at the top of a flight of stairs in his bedroom closet, which didn't usually contain a flight of stairs at all. She had been sitting on the top step, arms around her knees, her mouth pursed a little with frustration. It's easy, I swear, really it is, she said, and leaned forward into empty air to kiss him on the forehead, clutching the stair rail for balance. See, she said, and did it again, on the temple this time. By now, he had climbed the stair the rest of the way to sit beside her. The space around them looked like an attic, dusty and forgotten. Just one, she said, and the kiss landed high on his cheekbone. If you could just, on his jaw, figure it out, on his mouth. Rick woke up with a confused, half-desperate heart on, like he hadn't had since high school, and no idea why. But later, days later, he looked up at the ceiling of his bedroom closet, and he noticed for the first time that there was a trap door up there, its edges nearly painted over. Does this building have an attic? He asked Angela that night, over baked Ziddy. Her boyfriend was working late. Because I think there's a door to one up in my ceiling. I don't think so. But we should check, Angela said. There might be some cool stuff up there. So they borrowed a ladder from the super, to change some light bulbs, Angela lied, and scraped the painted over seams free and levered the trap door open. There weren't any pull-down stairs, which Rick for some reason had been expecting just a dark hole into nothing. He insisted on going up the ladder first, making Angela grouse at him about misplaced chivalry. If a bat poops on your head, I'm going to laugh, she warned him. If a raccoon tries to eat your face, so will I, he shot back and flicked on the flashlight. Please, we're twelve stories up. There's not going to be any raccoons, Angela began, and stopped abruptly, head and shoulders through the trap door. The attic was, in fact, full of stuff. Cardboard boxes, old trunks, a stacked pyramid of artificial Christmas trees. The space was bigger than Rick's place, but clearly didn't extend across the whole building. There was a rough red brick wall that broke it up, about where the next door apartment would start. They had their own attic, Rick supposed. This is so cool, Angela breathed, swinging the flashlight around. Look, you can see where the rooms are in your apartment. And she was right. The wall studs from the floor below came up through the floor just a little. Okay, so there's your living room, and this is your hall, and... Huh. What? Rick asked. He was getting a closer look at the boxes. The top one seemed to be full of very old Halloween decorations. Rick, what's on the other side of those bookshelves in your hall? 
Angela asked, her expression thoughtful. She was pacing out a square across the creaky attic floor. Uh, the elevator mechanism, I think, Rick said, and closed the box. Hmm, Angela frowned. She got down on the floor and tried pressing her eye to a knothole. I don't think that's right. They came back down the ladder into Rick's apartment, stood back a few feet from the shelves, and gave them a long look. I could take the books down, Rick offered, but Angela made a face and shook her head. That'd take forever. Maybe just one shelf. So they did, clearing one long shelf from end to end, stacking the books neatly along the baseboards. Angela ran her fingers along the newly bared strip of wall. Oh, there! You feel that? Rick tried, and he did. A ridge, under the layers of paint and wallpaper, and then another one, just a few feet farther on. It felt like a door. I think we should take down all the books, Rick said. But by the time they'd done it, the day was practically gone, and they both had work in the morning. Ah, Angela said, before she went back downstairs. She stamped her foot in mock anger, like a kid play-acting at a tantrum. Rick thought it was a little cute, although that was a thought he tried not to have about Angela for a lot of reasons. She was a really good friend, in possession of a boyfriend, and also someone who knew him way too well for him comfortably to have that's cute thoughts about. So he put it out of his head, at least until he went to sleep that night where his dream was about a dark-haired pretty girl stamping her foot too and saying a lot of things that boiled down to, Ah! As soon as Rick got home from work the next day, he started taking the bookshelves down. He was almost done by the time Angela came. Her boyfriend, who'd offered to help with the heavy lifting, had been a no-show. It was just Rick and Angela then, who painstakingly cut through what must have been a dozen layers of paint and wallpaper, tracing out a shape that looked unmistakably, like a door. Now we just have to wedge the sucker open, Angela said, which turned out to be easier said than done. But they did it, eventually, jerking the door free in a shower of paint chips, and they both paused for a moment and looked at each other before either one tried to venture into the dark space on the other side. They went together, both leaning in through the door frame to look around before taking their first hesitant steps inside. The room was dark, with only a little dim green light filtering in through the single ivy-covered window. There was furniture, a desk, a dresser, the kind of antique sewing machine that you have to pedal. But all of it was so thickly shrouded in dust that it was hard to make out the details. The bed was covered in dust just as deep, which was why it took a long moment before either of them worked out what the shape on the bed was. It was understandable that it took them a little while to figure out that there was a person lying on the bed. Her hair was fanned out on the pillow, but it was so thick with dust it looked gray. The dust was on her face, her eyelashes, on the thin, pale arms that rested limp on the cobwebbed bedspread. Only a little of the skin around her mouth and nose was clear of it, where her breath went gently in and out, slowly, steadily. Her mouth was red, and it turned down a little at the corners. Rick and Angela looked at each other, and then back at the girl on the bed. Holy shit, Angela breathed out, and then they backed out of the room, and Rick dialed 911. The next couple of days were, for Rick, not a lot of fun. There was a lot of people, paramedics, police officers, social workers, who gave him and Angela long, 
skeptical looks before taking them to separate rooms to ask them a lot of questions. But they both told everyone the same thing. And anyway, the story was so completely unbelievable that Rick figured that no one would have the balls to make it up. Eventually, everyone stopped looking at Rick like he was some sort of depraved kidnapper and started trying to figure out who the girl was and how she got into the secret room in Rick's apartment. The girls on the fourth floor let him sleep on their couch for a while because most of his apartment was full of confused CSIs and police tape that they left behind. Also, they were the only ones in the building beside Angela who'd ride in the elevator with him anymore. It all died down eventually, although Rick still had a lot of anxiety dreams where he was getting sent to prison forever, and also wasn't getting his security deposit back. He woke up from them, flailing to throw off the covers, sweating and breathing too fast, and took a long time to get back to sleep. The realtor, who owned the building, sent a guy to strip out the hidden door of its layers of paint and to make sure the secret room was up to code. And finally, weeks later, Rick got up the nerve to go and see the girl at the hospital. He wasn't actually sure they'd let him in at first, but after he explained, the nurse at the reception said they hadn't been able to find any next of kin or to identify her at all. She was still a Jane Doe on her charts. If he told her that he thought they might be related, she could get him into the room for a minute. Because, honey, we don't know a thing, and it's driving everyone who's had anything to do about this case nuts. Just talk to the doctors, you'll see. Completely around the bend. And yeah, the scrubs-clad doctor slumped in a chair at the girl's bed, scribbling half-heartedly at her chart, did have a kind of edge-of-his-teeth look to him. When Rick introduced himself, the doctor just nodded and went back to his chart. The name tag said, Dr. N. Chowdhury. She hasn't woken up, Rick asked. For his trouble, he got a look that probably could have withered houseplants. Dr. Chowdhury ran a hand through his hair, making it stand on end even more than it already had been. No, she hasn't woken up, nor has she required IV fluids or the use of a bedpan or responded to any test beyond taking her pulse manually. And I'm quite sure I'm not supposed to be telling you this, but... He slammed his chart down with a crack. This makes no sense. The nurses can't get a line in because the needles all develop spontaneous clogs or the IV bags start to leak. And the monitoring equipment fritzes out if we bring it within six feet of her. We had to move her so she wouldn't screw up the other patient's heart monitors. He scowled down at the bed as though the girl was trying to piss him off personally with her failure to cooperate with medical science. Either I'm going to get a hell of a paper out of this or a nervous breakdown. Rick winced. If it helps, I'm as confused as you are, possibly more, because apparently we've been secret roommates for a while. The doctor nodded. I read all those interviews you and your friend gave when they first brought her in. This is the weirdest fucking case. What are you doing here anyway? Rick shrugged. I just wanted to see her, I guess. No one's told me anything. I was hoping she'd have woken up by now. What are you going to do if she doesn't? Send her to some long-term care someplace, I suppose. But that's not up to me. I'm just supposed to get her eyes open. Or a blood sample would be a good start, too. Rick looked at the girl lying on the hospital bed. Her face was still and expressionless. She was wearing a hospital gown now, not the old-fashioned white nightgown he found her in. And now that her hair was clean, he could see that it was dark brown and wavy. Her eyelids didn't even flicker. Rick wasn't sure what he'd been expecting.
A nurse leaned into the room, waving a chart at Dr. Chaudhry. He scowled and ran his hands through his hair one more time. I've got to go get this. Don't... I don't know. I don't think there's anything you can do, but don't do it anyway. He walked out, following the nurse. Rick took his chair and sat for a while. The girl didn't move. He tried taking her hand, but it was cool and dry and totally, completely unresponsive. Holding her hand was starting to make him feel like a creep, so he put it back down and sat for a while longer. Nothing happened and kept happening. Rick started to feel like an idiot. No, he'd been doing that for a while, actually. What he was doing now was giving up. I'm sorry, he told the girl in the hospital bed, though he wasn't sure what he had to be sorry for. He hadn't even known she existed before the day he found the trap door in his attic. Before he left, though, he leaned over her and kissed her forehead, like he might have kissed Denise goodnight when she was little. Bye, he said, and turned for the door. Right before he got there, someone behind him said, Took you long enough? He turned, and the girl was propped up on her elbows, looking at him. One corner of her mouth turned up. Hello, she said. Um, Rick said. Can I... I think I need a nurse in here. There followed another flurry of doctors, police, and social workers. Only this time Rick wasn't the target. The girl was. And she answered all the questions in a flat, rapid-fire voice with a sardonic twist to her expression. Yes, her memory was fine. No, she didn't know how she got in the hidden room or how long she was there. Her name was Jen Weaver, and she was 26, and she didn't have any living family. The social worker asked her what year she was born, and for the first time she paused, just a flicker, and closed her eyes for a moment before she said, 1985, December 9th. Rick offered her a place to stay without quite thinking about whether it was a good idea. He was more than a little surprised when she took him up on it. He and Angela came and got her out of the hospital together. Angela brought Jen clothes, which Rick hadn't thought of. Jen sat in a wheelchair that they made all the patients ride in to the door. Flicking thoughtfully through a stack of proof-you-exist paperwork the social worker had put together for her. So why don't you have a birth certificate again? Angela asked. She looked skeptical. I told you, Jen said. My parents didn't believe in them. A little bit paranoid, my family. Overprotective. Sweet, though. Very religious. She frowned down at her social security card. She put my name down as Jennifer. I thought it was Jennifer, Rick said. It's Jeanette, said Jen. But it'll do. Rick didn't suggest that Jen sleep in the hidden room, and he wasn't surprised that she opted for the couch and said. It was a pullout anyway, and she was one of the very few house guests he'd ever had whose feet didn't dangle off the edge of the mattress. Angela's clothes and the things the fourth floor sisters had given her were practically swimming on Jen. The first full day Jen spent in Rick's apartment, or rather awake in Rick's apartment, she spent cleaning out the hidden room of its accumulation of dust. She twirled a broom in the corners, catching banners of cobwebs, and took the sewing machine to pieces on the coffee table, cleaning and oiling each tiny part. Then she put it back together and spent her second day cutting down all the donated clothes. Rick hadn't expected her to pay rent, not really, but after the first week, she went out and came back, a few hours later, with a job at a theatrical costumer's. Then she spent the next few days 
turning the hidden room into a workshop. Rick sort of wondered if it wasn't just an excuse to take the old wooden bed frame to pieces, which she did with savage satisfaction, and hurl every stick of it into the dumpster behind the building. Most of the other people in the building were still avoiding Rick, but the next time it was his turn on the meal rota, Angela came up with the fourth floor sisters, and they ate dinner around the coffee table in the living room. Jeanette stayed in her workroom, appearing occasionally to get a notebook or a tape measure or a cup of coffee. It was the first time in weeks Rick had just hung out with anyone without something incredibly strange happening. He and Angela drank a bottle of wine between them, easily, while the fourth floor sisters sipped at their own drinks and gave each other significant looks. They left early, after the first movie ended and before the second one started. Angela left two movies later, after it was way too late to have anything like a decent day at work tomorrow. After she was gone, he found that Jen had already gone ahead and fallen asleep on his bed. Rick ended up sleeping on the pullout, his ankles hanging out into empty air. That night, Rick dreamed he was sitting on the couch with Jen, watching Gone with the Wind. I still haven't seen this live, Jen mused, taking a pull off her beer. And the dream version never makes as much sense. You'd be surprised how much stuff isn't turning out how I expected. In the dream, this all made perfect sense to Rick. Is that why you make that face when you're eating sometimes, on the first bite? Jen laughed. That's exactly why. It never tastes how I think it will. She wasn't wearing an outfit Rick had seen before. Her dress was long and high-collared, with lace at the cuffs. But she was wearing big, bright green bangles and earrings he could swear were Angela's. Rick called in sick to work the next morning. He'd only managed a few hours sleep, and the pullout was uncomfortable as hell. He asked Jen if she wanted something better, but she just gave him the same opaque look she usually wore and said no, it was fine. She didn't sleep well that much anyway. Living with Jen was strange, all things considered. She was neat, after a fashion, and quiet, but she didn't put things away like a normal person. Rick kept finding his measuring cups in the medicine cabinet and his pans in the dish cupboard. Once, Jen came into his bedroom without knocking, said, Sorry, I thought this would be the bathroom, and left again. Jen explained why she did it in a dream. It was something about her sense of spatial relations being a mess after so long a sleep. But he didn't remember it. Rick wasn't actually all that surprised when Jen announced she was moving out. She didn't explain where she was going until that night, when Rick was sleeping. I got this job in Richmond, with a fashion label, she told him, while they floated an inner tube some distance from shore at Coney Island. In the distance, the people on the beach were wearing funny old-fashioned swimsuits. It all seemed vaguely familiar, which Jen got a little defensive about. Well, it's one of my favorites, she said, and I won't get to see it after I leave. It was strange in the hospital, not dreaming. Do you think moving away will help? Rick asked. With, you know, the, the trouble you've been having. I hope so. She paddled close enough to bump in her tubes with Rick. I'm sorry I'm so weird when I'm awake. You know, I'm just not used to it yet. But I think I'm getting there. I'm hoping it will help to leave New York. On the shore, a family of swimmers was waving at them, beckoning Jen closer. She splashed around so her back was to them. I get it. Rick said. After a while, dream logic starts to make sense. Yeah, that's kind of the problem, Jen said. They floated companionably for a while. Hey, said Jen, right before Rick woke up. 
When Angela tells you about her boyfriend, there's something you really should do. But Rick woke before she could tell him what it was, and he felt vaguely dissatisfied the whole rest of the day, as though there was something important he wasn't getting. The day Jen moved out was also Angela's turn on the meal rota. So Rick went down to her apartment for dinner. Her boyfriend wasn't there, the way he usually was, and neither was her love seat and a bunch of art on the walls. Um, said Rick, where's, uh... He moved out, Angela said. The couch wasn't worth fighting over. Shut up, I don't want to talk about it. Let's just have dinner and watch a movie. Oh, said Rick, and he shut up. But late, as the movie was ending, there was a moment where, for the first time in months, Rick felt like he knew exactly what he was supposed to be doing. He leaned in and kissed Angela, just once and quickly, on the mouth. There was a long pause. What was that for? asked Angela. She was smiling, which seemed like a good sign. I don't know, said Rick. It seemed like the thing to do. And welcome back. Wow, like I said, sweet little story, wasn't it? I like being charmed every once in a while by a simple yet different fairy tale retelling. Feedback this week is for another cute little story. Robert E. Howard's Skulls and the Stars, featuring Solomon Kane, and read by Norm Sherman. What's that? You've never heard of Solomon Kane before? Well, you weren't the only one. But feedback on this was generally pretty positive for this little pulp tale. Swamp said, To be honest, while well, I've heard of the character of Solomon Kane, I've never taken the occasion to read a Solomon Kane story. This was a lot of fun. I like the fact that when given a choice of which path to take, and being warned of the dangers of the Moor Road, Solomon's response is, Adventure, the lure of live risk and drama and a strong man is needed to combat Satan and his might. Therefore I go, who have defeated him many a time. With confidence and righteous purpose like that, it's hard not to follow along. I'm glad I did. Very fun. Corcoran said, Great reading. Norm really has a voice to make this a pleasure to listen, even if I know every Howard from at least the reading a few times. It reminded me of my first look into fantasy 40 years ago, finding a Conan paperback. Thanks for this beautiful trip down memory lane. Corcoran also mentioned some trouble with the RSS feed, and so, yes, this is just a general acknowledgement that we realize we're having trouble with the feed, and it's getting stuck on Alibaba and the 40 feeds, I mean, uh, thieves, occasionally. We're looking into it and trying to fix it, so thanks for your patience. Hopefully it'll be taken care of soon. Well, thank you very much for those comments, and if you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and leaving a donation for us. Every single cent you give goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast going so we can stay up late, watching movies and flirting with you, and hopefully drinking some hard cider too. Thanks. Well, that was our show this week. We hope you enjoyed it. The Podcastle team is made up of associate editor Ann Leckie, who you heard in the intro, Peter Wood, our sound producer, and your editors, Anna Schwind and myself, Dave Thompson. Thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in a week with our holiday special, a brand new Podcastle original, 
by Tim Pratt and Heather Shaw called Catching the Spirit. Until then, I'd like to apologize for all of us at Podcastle. We're very sorry we're so weird when we're not awake. We'll see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. A.A. Milne said, I think we dream so we don't have to be apart for so long. If we're in each other's dreams, we could be together all the time.